The rest of you, why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel. Last week we were in 2 Samuel. This week we're going to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1, as we look at the account of Hannah, and as we talk about the topic this morning of infertility. I um, Originally, when I had set out the, the nature of this series, this last sermon was going to be about generally, I called it simply the failure of the body. And I realized that that was simply there was going to be too much, too broad there and wanted to hone in more on this area of sensitivity for many in our body, in our world. And so we're going to, if you would like though to, if you're somebody, I think in particular those in our church who are older um, or those with chronic disabilities or pain, there's a fabulous book called Embodied, Embodied, E-M-B-O-D-I-E-D, Embodied Hope by a guy named Kelly Kapich, K-A-P-I-C. It's a good Croatian name, Kapich. Um, if you would like to read about that, I think that's one of the best pieces of literature I've seen on the topic of how God redeems our pain, our physical pain. First Samuel chapter 1, we're going to read from verses 1 through 18. Follow along your Bibles as I read out loud. Picking up in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim. Aren't you so proud of me that I can say that? Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim. I went to seminary for three years just to be able to say words like that. Whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. No, we're not reading Lord of the Rings. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up every, year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out with great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God, may God, God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went away her way and ate, and her face 
was no longer sad. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it last forever. Johnny and Jenny sitting in the tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. This silly little rhyme reveals expectations that are shaped in us from a very young age. Expectations that we may not even know are there and how powerful they are, how they exist in our heart until we grow up, get married, and suddenly struggle to have children. The deep desires to birth image bears goes perhaps unnoticed until we face the potentiality that we are unable. One in seven couples at some point will struggle with infertility. Here's how that is defined. Infertility is defined as the inability to conceive after one year of unprotected intercourse or the inability to carry a pregnancy to live birth. For many, infertility, therefore, is a season. And eventually that season may end with a child. But for some, that season lasts a lifetime. The story of infertility, and it is a story, comes in varied ways. Primarily, we think of husbands and wives not able to have kids, and that is who I primarily have in mind this morning. But there are others who may not be physically infertile, but have still been unable to have children for various reasons in God's providence. The single man or the single woman who desire children but are not able because of their marital state. The wife whose husband simply will not lay down his desires to live a life unencumbered by children. There is a severe providence there that she is living under. In some ways even, the woman who desires more children but is either unable, maybe through secondary infertility, or again, that marital dynamic is not able to happen either. The story of infertility comes with a whole host of other pains and sorrows, temptations and challenges, besides the very direct sense of dashed hopes about not having a child. There is a sense of of being out of control or powerless. I had the help of one couple, a very dear friend and his wife this week, who who shared with me for two hours their their years of, of struggle with infertility. And the wife said something so profound. She said, I had always been able to work really hard and get what I wanted. I never had a story I didn't want, but I couldn't rewrite this one no matter what I did. One husband shared that one of the biggest struggles is the feeling of helplessness. And my friend actually said, you are and you feel impotent. There is the experience of constantly being on an emotional roller coaster from month to month, hopes up, hopes dashed. One woman named Christine said this, each period ended a sentence we didn't want to end. Each month brought fresh hurt and ache for a baby, only to be left feeling stupid for letting my hopes rise again. There are church and cultural expectations that make this even more difficult, right? You show up to church week in and week out, and it feels like people are boring a hole in the back of your head, that they see the years of your marriage tick by, and yet no children are there, and they wonder, what's wrong with them? What's going on there? It's a failure of identity for many. For Hannah, that's what it was for her, right? There was deep and significant cultural expectations, 
To them, to them, to have children, that was their retirement. That was their means of continuing the nation. It was their means of developing a, uh, an army. It was their means of developing a workforce that would live and serve in the farm in an agrarian culture. You, to have a child and to have many children meant you were a national hero. To not have children, it meant, who are you? What is your worth here? The spoken un- messages and the unspoken messages for some, even in our culture, is that you're not really married until you have kids, or you aren't really an adult until you have children, or you aren't really a Christian family until there's a whole brood of kids in your wake. There are those who seem to communicate that their assumption that you are just simply being selfish and worldly if you don't have as many kids as them. Sometimes these assumptions and expectations are communicated most profoundly in God's, amongst God's people. There are many and profound also relational challenges that come with infertility. Infertility puts an enormous strain on marriages, an enormous strain. One pastor who has written on infertility remembers sitting with one couple at a, at a lunch after he was actually speaking at a, a seminar on the topic of infertility, and he was sitting with this young couple, and he asked each of them, the husband and the wife, what's your greatest sense of loss? The wife immediately said, the loss of a dream. But the husband hesitated in his answer, and then gently rubbing his wife's arm, he said this, don't take this the wrong way. It's the loss of my wife. See, in her sorrow and her grief, she had grown distant and far from him. Infertility often comes with deep anger and feelings of insecurity that lead to all sorts of relational conflicts. Even the thing that should be the most intimate act and of joy and pleasure within the marital context, sexual intimacy itself becomes something that is a dutiful act full of tension and fear. Relationships with family members can be tense as, they mount, as the mounting pressure on couples comes from grandparents saying, ahem, at every holiday. Relationships with friends and members of the church who are able to conceive becomes increasingly difficult as they are able to have children and they move on to various other stages of life. And those who are unable to conceive are feeling angry and jealous and then guilty for feeling angry and jealous. And then there's the spiritual pain. Questions and doubts about the goodness of God arise. Anger at the Lord's providence, a sense of a profound sense of injustice. And this, I, I, I see this, it's, it's, it makes so much sense. A sense of injustice that how is it that people out there who don't want, even want to have children or who are not going to be good parents are able to have kids and I am not? You struggle with the reality that there are those out there who don't care, who don't pray, who don't, who, all through their pregnancy, if they do get pregnant, smoke, drink, eat soft cheeses and deli meats, who spend time in freshly painted rooms, and they're able to bring children to live birth who have no issues, but you, you're not able to do so. And you go, you look at the Lord and you go, what the heck? What's the deal with this? And then there are further losses that add to the questions and the relational challenges and the deep and confounding hurt. So, so many of those who struggle to conceive, then once having conceived, experience the deeply painful experience of miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. The trauma-inducing experiences of passing children alone at home. For some, the offer of medical treatment... And there is much medical treatment now offered in our day and age, but even that brings up a whole new set of pains. What if you're financially not able to pay the thirty, forty, or fifty thousand dollars? Now this brings up a whole other series of tensions, doesn't it? My husband doesn't make enough. 
God has not provided for us. One woman summarizes this way and I think gives voice to the profound struggle with these words. In the midst of our infertility, I cried a million tears. I cried out to God. I read the Bible, but in my own anguish, I ranted and I raved. If I saw a story on TV about a, a baby thrown out or a child who had suffered abuse, I screamed at the television. That was part of the way I processed my anger, my grief. For there was no funeral. There was no burial. There was no flowers and no cards. Yet there was death the death of my hopes. Here's the proposition this morning, that infertility is a deep and abiding suffering. Let's call it what it is. A suffering that comes under the name infertility and packaged with all sorts of other crushing aspects, questions and confusions and doubts. It's a suffering, a complex package of sufferings twisted all together. Infertility is deeply difficult. One psychologist actually said this, that the studies show that depression and anxiety experienced by an infertile woman are equivalent to that of a woman suffering from a terminal illness. And it's, this is backed up. The Bible says this as well in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 16. It says there's four experiences in life that one will never be satisfied and, and, and truly comforted. And one of them is the inability to have children. And therefore, here's what that means. There is nothing I can say this morning that can fix it. I wish I could. So what is left for me to do? Well, it's to give you context. You see, infertility, as I said earlier, is a story. This aspect of your story may be a chapter in your life or multiple chapters, or it may be a theme that runs through the whole narrative of your life. But what I want to do this morning is give context to this aspect of your story, to a larger story. And the context of your story of infertility is, must be seen in the larger context of God's character and his redemptive plan in this world. And so here's where we begin. Begin, you say. We've gone for 10 minutes. We'll try to be a little bit briefer this morning. We begin with God. We begin with God. We're going to talk about suffering, and we are going to begin with the God of suffering. The God of suffering. Let's just say it, and let's we'll say it head on. The suffering of infertility is from the Lord, from the providential sovereign hand of God. Now you'd say, that seems very insensitive to say that, and it would be, except for the fact that it's so clearly in the Bible. Over and over and over again, the Bible says this, and actually twice it says it in our passage today. Did you catch it? Pick it up in verse 5. But to Hannah, Elkanah gave a double portion of the sacrifices because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. The scriptures tell us time and time again that the Lord, that our God is the God who gives and he takes away. He is the one who opens and who closes wombs. From our limited point of view, though, this does not, at first blush, feel like much comfort, does it? Frankly, this feels unbelievably arbitrary. That God is the giver and the taker, that he has chosen to open some wombs and to close others, and that it's by his hand actually may, for some, make the experience of suffering even more. From our limited point of view, God just seems completely and profoundly unjust at worst, and at best, a simply arbitrary God who has his hand off the wheel of our life. But God's withholding is never arbitrary, even when it comes to children. For while we find that the chapter of the narrative 
with a line called infertility is a deeply unwanted story that there is a grander context in which God says, my hands are firmly implanted on the wheel of your life and I am doing something lovely with it. You understand this, the God who is sovereign, part of that, what that means is he has planned out your life. And for you, first comes love, first comes, and then comes marriage, then comes the baby and the baby carriage, comes as a shattered sense of expectations that for God, he's actually planned out your life. And what you're experiencing right now is as no surprise to him. He is writing a story with your life, and we get to look forward with expectation as to what he is doing. God is not surprised. He has planned out your family in every detail. He knew it before time began. And it is our role then to look and see and be curious as to what the Lord is bringing about in our life. Now, you might well ask, well, how can I trust a sovereign God and his plan? How do I know this isn't punishment? How do I know that God in his mysterious ways has not sought to abandon me to this awful form of suffering? How can I trust a God whose way seems to be so unbelievably arbitrary? And here's where we have to lift up our story of suffering into the larger story of suffering in the Bible, which includes smack dab in the middle of it, a cross of suffering. I had a wonderful friend this week that I spoke to, and he said this, that that a great comfort to him was early chapters in Acts, and he, he pointed to one particular story, one particular chapter, where in, there's persecution happening to the church. It's happening to Peter and to James, and both Peter and James get arrested, and the church falls on their knees and pleads with God to save both Peter and James. And what's interesting is James, James is thrown off the temple and he dies. He's beaten to death. And Peter is miraculously set free. And to my friend struggling with infertility, he said this was a chapter of, this was a passage of great comfort to him. How can that be a passage of great comforts? Here's why. Because he saw things through the lens of the cross. We must see God's sovereignty, not as something that is arbitrary, but we see it through the lens of the cross. And the cross changes our perspective on God's sovereignty in at least three ways as it relates to our infertility. The cross tells us that our story of infertility is not one of punishment, because this is one of the lies that we're most apt to believe. That we are tempted to believe in the face of suffering is that we are being punished at the hand of a sour-faced God. But the cross tells the Christian that suffering, and especially the suffering of infertility, is not a mark of his disfavor, for he has placed all of his disfavor, all of his wrath for you, not upon you, but upon Jesus Christ himself. The cross also tells us that God is willing to grant us all good things. That in his sovereign and perfect plan, that he is not willing to to withhold any blessings from us that are not for our ultimate good. In our suffering in this area of infertility, it can appear that God is simply stingy with his blessings. That he is doling out the cards of children in a way that is stingy to us. It can appear that being friends with God is a friendship that comes with some unwelcome benefits. There's an old Roman Catholic mystic named St. Teresa of Avila, and um, she writes an experience where she was thrown off her horse on the way to a monastery, and the horse threw her off into a river. And she said she looked up and she said, Dear Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. And that often is what it feels like to be someone who follows Jesus, right? 
And yet Psalm 8411 says, there is no good thing that he withhold. That is probably, that could be one of the hardest verses to hear unless you see it through the lens of the cross. Yes, while being friends with a sovereign God is full of mystery and leaves us often scratching our heads about his sovereign will in our life, we can know that the experience of suffering is not because he is not without favor for us, and it's not because he's being stingy for us, because he withholds not the most precious thing from us. He will not withhold to you his son who would come and die for you. For he who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all good things? The cross tells us that God is not being stingy. The cross also tells us, reminds us that in his sovereign plan, God is faithful. The biblical passages on this topic are very annoying. In fact, I didn't even finish the account of Hannah. You guys know what happens? She very annoyingly conceives and has a child. In the vast majority of passages that deal with infertility in the Bible, a child ultimately comes. But the purpose of these stories in the Bible are not meant to be a promise to everyone who is childless that God will one day give them a child. Instead, they are there to show that God is faithful. God is faithful. If the moral of the story was, hey, if you just pray hard enough and believe hard enough, that would be unbiblical and insensitive. But the purpose, rather, is to highlight God's covenant faithfulness. This is what we see it time and time again. The point of God's provision is to point out that God will be faithful no matter the difficulty and no matter the suffering and no matter the things that seem to be built up against us, age or past experience, God is faithful. He has shown that he is willing to go to the fullest lengths. That he has said, listen, this is how far I will go to display to you my faithfulness. I am willing to send my son to a cross so that even when you are unfaithful, I will display to you that I am perfectly faithful. So here's the question that I would bring to you. And I did not come up with this question. A friend of mine who in herself struggled with infertility, asks this question. I think it is a challenge question for us. Is the goodness of God's sovereignty going to be tied to whether he gives me a child or not? Or will your sense of the goodness of God be tied to the cross? I'll put it a different way. Will your sense of the goodness of God, of his sovereignty, be viewed in light of your suffering or in light of his suffering? on your behalf. And understand that while I, I understand that that is a challenge question for those who long to be comforted, that if you will embrace that, you will be introduced to a God who in his sovereignty says, I am with you, I am faithful, I am not being stingy to you, I am here with you all the way, I am not angry with you, and what you get invited into at that point is a journey with God, not apart from God. Psalm chapter 77, verse 19 says this. It seems, seems like this comes straight out of the chicken soup for the soul or some sort of hallmark card. But it says, this is actually the Bible. It says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters of suffering, yet your footprints were unseen. You see, in suffering, it seems like God is distant and arbitrary and far from us. But we have the footprints. They look like a carpenter from Nazareth. And when he takes his footprints and he takes his nail-pierced hands and his feet and he takes them to a cross, it changes our whole perspectives of God's sovereignty. Now, if God is the one who leads you to suffering, then it means that suffering in this particular way is a calling on your life. 
And this is the second thing I want us to look at this morning. It's a calling. Author Karen Swallow Pryor, who who was at Liberty University, now is at Southeastern um, Theological Seminary, said that infertility is a calling of God. A calling is not simply a job or profession, although that is how the term is usually applied, she said. A calling, though, applies a particular way that God invites us to live in the world. One may be called to law or to the classroom, to singleness or to marriage, to child-rearing or to childlessness. The call and reasons for it are Christ's alone. A calling a calling. This is how we are to see this in all suffering. Who would want this calling, though? And you're right, who would want this calling? But we rarely, rarely get to choose the callings in our life. God, when he's doing something powerful and mighty, particularly through suffering, we would never choose that aspect of our calling. But he is doing something mighty And like any calling, the great goal of our calling in the midst of it is to live with faith and obedience in living for the glory of the Lord. And so you might ask this, well, okay, all right, this is a calling. Oh, that did not help. This is a calling in my life. What does it look like to be faithful and obedience in a calling of infertility? Let me me give you two suggestions this morning. One is faithfulness to God's commandments. Faithfulness to God's commandments. What's so interesting about the narratives that involve infertility in the Bible is how few of the people who um, are struggling with this actually engage with it in a faithful way. You remember the story of Sarah? What does she suggest? God's promised a child to Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah goes, it's not happening. Hey, here, take my servant and treat her as a sexual slave. That sounds like an immoral suggestion, and it is. The same thing happens with Rachel and Jacob, in which she says, here, take my concubine, Jacob. I'm, unwilling to, I'm unable to conceive, and so have my servants. Throughout its history, Israel did not look to the God who had promised to make Israel as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and instead they looked to a God named Asherah, who is the God of fertility. Now, practically speaking, what this means is this is that as you, even as you pursue and you pray and you ask for a child, that as you pursue fertility and as you pursue a child, that you must do so in submission to God's commands and God's priorities and principles. What that means is that we do that in the context of God's kingdom priorities and in view of the commands of the king. Remaining faithful to the commands that honor, for, for example, the sanctity of marriage. That God has designed children to come from a man and a woman. And that we're not going to go outside the marital covenant in order to seek children. That in your trust in the Lord, you will not violate his principles about the sanctity of life. For example, there are many artificially reproductive treatments that are off limits for the believer. Because in so doing, we play God. And we form embryos. And then we freeze embryos. And then we cast frozen embryos off. This is playing with dangerous territory. We must consider aspects like even surrogacy with some wisdom that may or may not be a violation of God's law, but we must look at it from the side view and go, is it appropriate to treat women and commodify their bodies as something we pay for them to carry our children? Another would be you can misconsider the idea of husband and wife relationship and should we go outside of our relationship in order to conceive? In other words, I believe being a sperm donor is off limits for Christians. Not everyone has to wrestle with these things, but in faithfulness to your calling, you must. 
You must do some heavy lifting in regards to dealing with the wisdom of what does it look like to carry out the suffering in, the, in a faithful way. Now, that seems hard, and it is. And the second one, though, is far more intimate and far more relational. Faithfulness to this calling means this, that you will faithfully keep crying out to the Lord. We are talking about the loss of a child. Part of what makes this so severely difficult in the context of the church is because we have the creation mandate, which says, be fruitful and multiply. And we have a passage like Psalm 127 that says, children are a blessing and a gift from the Lord. When such a gift is withheld, it becomes even more grievous to us. And so it is with Hannah. What does Hannah do? Sarah says, we're going to take things in our own hands. Hannah says, we're going to cry out to the Lord. In her despondency, year in and year out of turmoil and anguish and heartache, she says, that's enough. I can bear it no more. I must unleash this burden with a torrent of tears and cries before the Lord. And it says that she prayed and she wept bitterly, but she prays and she weeps bitterly at the foot of the cross, at the foot of her king. Hannah gives us a clinic of what real authenticity looks like. Real authenticity is not I complain to a bunch of other people, but real authenticity means I weep before the God who says he's sovereign over my life. You say, how how is this faithfulness? Notice the beginning of Hannah's prayer. It is rooted in her belief that the Lord of hosts hears her. The Lord of hosts hears her. She refers to God as the Lord of hosts. That is the term that describes in the Old Testament the God who rules over all things, his rule over angels, his rules over over every cosmic power. That is a term that speaks to God's sovereignty and to his power. But then she follows this reference for God with her cry to God to look upon her affliction, to see and to remember her. In other words, she's saying this, great general in the sky. God who flung the stars into the heavens, one who is over and oversees all things, hear the cries of me. One commentator said this, she addresses the Yahweh of hosts, the cosmic ruler, the sovereign of everything, the one who has all power, and assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to the heart of this God. And that is true for you as well. That someone struggling with infertility in West Georgia, someone who we, their, their friends may not even know it, God hears your cries. The pattern of God throughout biblical history shows us time and time and time again that he hears the lowly and he binds up the brokenhearted. He does not discard them and say that they are worthless, but instead he invites them in and he gives them great purpose. And it is that truth that sets Hannah free to pray out her heavy spirit before the Lord. You see, year after year, she cries out before the Lord. And the Bible is a story of hopes, of hopes that come with grief and groaning because we live in a world in which our hopes are not yet fulfilled. There's many hopes in this room. Not all of them necessarily are children. But the, the, the reality of living in this time between the cross of Jesus and the return of Jesus is that we will have many hopes that will remain unfulfilled in this life. And so we cry out. We cry out day in and day out. Now understanding this, it means this as well, though, that lamenting with integrity means we don't necessarily expose ourselves to greater pain than we necessarily have to. Lamenting with integrity does not mean you take on a masochistic pain complex as a Christian or a martyrdom complex, which means this, skip the baby shower. It's okay. 
Christian fellowship does not revolve around attendance at baby showers. Christian fellowship revolves around word and prayer and sacraments. Keep crying out. Take medical steps that are appropriate and ethical according to God's word. For some of you, it means to continue to implore God for children that you don't give up asking him, crying out for a child. But the faithful, the faithful fulfilling of the calling of this suffering is learning to, re- to lament rather than vent. Learning to lament rather than vent. Ultimately, the faithfulness is found in this, that in our calling of suffering, we are drawing near to the Lord. We're drawing near to the Lord. God is glorified by relieving our suffering, and sometimes God is glorified by allowing us to stay there. In either case, God is always seeking to bestow us the greatest blessing that he can give, and that is himself. And this is why continuing to cry out to him is the greatest act of faithfulness. It is continuing to say, I will go to the one place, to the one place in which my soul can be satisfied apart from a child. The goal is not to get over our sorrows or to get a baby. The goal is to know Jesus and to know him in the context of his sufferings. And it is always in the context of suffering that we come to know God better. There are so many great examples of lament in the Bible. One could, if I could recommend, just simply go to Psalm chapter 77 and read through it. Maybe take the words there and make them your own. But another would be, you know there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentation? There's another whole book called Habakkuk in which a prophet of God cries out before the Lord in which God is saying to Habakkuk, hey, I'm going to bring a foreign nation, a Gentile nation, they're going to destroy Israel. And Habakkuk goes, how can you do that and remain covenantally faithful to us? And by the end of the book, you know what happens? God's mind has not been changed. Israel will still have much suffering. Habakkuk will too. And yet at the end, here's what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Himself. Himself. Faithfulness is lamenting to the God who can satisfy your soul, even without giving you the child that you so long for. Anita describes this valley of hope herself, a woman who struggled with infertility for years. She said, I couldn't get enough of Jesus in the way he made himself known to those who were hungry for him. Two years since the loss of my children in the womb have been filled with many ways of discovering that the only guarantee in this life is Jesus himself. As that truth increasingly fills my heart, I find myself able to open my hands that hold too tightly to all I think is mine. Ironically, as I let go, I find myself much less consumed with the fear of losing more children. What I find instead is a tender shoot of grace growing in my heart. This is the calling, a faithful calling of walking and suffering. Yes, keeping the commands of the Lord, and even more so, going to him and saying, you are who I need. Lastly, I'm going to give you some comforts. Remember, he's the God who, in his sovereignty, through the cross, he gives us Christ himself, and he doesn't withhold anything else. He doesn't withhold the things that we truly need that would be for our good. I'm going to give you two things, two aspects of the comfort that flow out of the the gospel of Jesus. First is this, is the comfort of the Spirit. You have the comfort of the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God. In our salvation, the Spirit of God comes in and dwells inside of you. We talked about this last week in regards to assault. 
That the very body that has been insulted, God says that that is my temple and I will go and reside there. Well, you know what? The spirit of the living God comes and is placed into the womb of your life. And that spirit bears what? Fruit. And it is a promise. And we see even from the parable of the seed that when someone truly in the spirit invades someone's life, they produce not a tenfold or fortyfold, but a hundred and a thousandfold. You, by your identity, are a fruitful vine. If you are indwelt by the spirit who produces fruit in your life, then you have a fruitful life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And that is a promise from God. You are fruitful. A garden of life resides in you resides in you. The truly infertile in this case, therefore, are those who may have many kids, but pursue none of these traits. Do not make disciples of all nations. They do not point anyone to Christ. They rear no one to maturity in Christ Jesus. The idea may be difficult in consoling those who are biologically infertile, but it is the idea that is seen in light of God's kingdom, that what really matters is your fertility in light of who, what God is doing through you and in you. For you as one filled by the Spirit, gifted by the Spirit, and indwelt by the Spirit, you have been given a high and holy purpose in this world that far exceeds giving birth to children. The creator and redeemer of your life has not forsaken you, but has instead given you a slightly different way of being fruitful in this world. I actually told the story last year about a woman named Mary. Her name was Mary Nelson. She prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed for a child, and God never gave her a child. She was out working in her garden one day, and she was there praying in her garden. She said, God, I'm going to ask you one more time. Give me a child, and give me a child this year. This is the last time I'll ask. And nine months later, she gave birth to a crisis pregnancy center. And then she gave birth to another one. She gave birth to another one. And she gave birth to another one. And now thousands and thousands of children are alive because of her. To you who feel that life does not flow through you, here's the truth for you. There is a river of life that resides in you by the very Spirit of God. To you who feel impotent, you have the peerlessly power, peerless power of God residing within your soul. Do not let the lies of the evil one and the expectations of the world define your identity. What God says about you define that. Second, the comfort of adoption. And here I am not suggesting that you adopt. This is one of the things we're going to say, a number of these things, what we don't say. Hey, have you thought about adoption? Yes, they've thought about adoption. They don't need you to suggest this. I'm talking about the far greater adoption, is that you have been adopted into a family. One of the questions of those who struggle with fertility is, are we really a family? And I would say the question is moot if you're part of the family of God. Each of us is born into a family. We don't have any say in the matter. We're born, and that's where we find ourselves. That's how we come to understand ourselves. Parents, siblings, those who love and care for us. Well, what happens when God the Father himself says, you're in my family? How does that shape your life? How does that shape your life? That you're adopted as a child into the family of God. That you're, no, you're not born in the family as simply of your own choice. But God himself has declared and pointed you and said, you are mine. The Latin origin of the word adopt actually connotes something of choosing. God chose you to be a part of his family. 
We are adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, it says in Ephesians 5, according to the purpose of his will. That same will that may have made you infertile is the will that says, you are my beloved child. In God's family, everyone is adopted. It's the common identity we have here. God comes to us and brings us in, married or singled, orphaned or adopted, fertile or infertile, close or estranged. The Christian always, always, always have a family. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ is to belong to a family. And so let me ask you, Church of Jesus Christ, how are we doing being the family? Let me suggest some ways in which we can help our suffering brothers and sisters, in particular in regards to infertility. Here's some ways to be sensitive. Don't talk so much about your kids. They are not the central mission of your life. They may be the object for a season of your discipleship, but they are not the central mission. Our lives together in God's family are meant to revolve around Jesus Christ, not our various diapers or strollers that we've decided to purchase. Remember that baby showers are places of joy and deep sorrow. And so if you see a friend there who's struggling in infertility, know that they are doing an unbelievably courageous thing and hug them and care for them and be patient with them if they cannot come. Don't push the adoption option. I've already talked about this. Any sentence that begins with the words at least, just go ahead and not say that. At least you don't have cancer. Yeah, okay. After a miscarriage, oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. These are not helpful words. And here's the more, far more Christianized version of it. Prophetic platitudes are of no help. When God closes a window, he opens a door. This is foolishness. I just know you'll have another one, or you'll have one. You don't know that. Don't promise things that God has not promised. Here's some more positive ways to care. Cry with them. When they tell you about their story, you don't have to say anything. Just sit in silence. Invite them into your small group. Hang out with them. Pray over them. Be patient. One of the experiences of those who struggle with infertility is the length of it. It can go on for years and years and years, and they grow weary of asking it as a prayer request. Be patient with their suffering as they are weary with their own. One last thing I'd say to you, though, who are brothers and sisters, one final word of comfort. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verses three through five, and then we're gonna to go to the table. Here's what that passage says. Maybe one final word of comfort to you this morning. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls to them a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Here's what this means. Faith to God says my heart breaks over the fact that I do not have a son or daughter, but I will cling to this that in the household of God I have a name, and that name is Beloved. Beloved. And to this you will hold fast. Family of God, let's go to the table together. Let's pray. If you're serving, please come forward first, as well as worship leaders. You're going to be served first here in just a moment. We've got Mike Mason and Eric Hine over here, Mike Cockerese and Ben Weber over here. Let's pray together.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we need grace. We need grace to extend to one another on our suffering. And we desperately need the grace to hear the voice of God. That when the lies of the world, the proclivities of our own soul to believe those lies, when the struggles and sufferings of life tell us that we are of no value, of no purpose, and no worth, would the cross of Jesus Christ scream louder? That when our bodies don't work as we think that they ought, that, Lord, we would look to the one who allowed his body to be shattered and broken for us. So that he who had no earthly children might declare each of us through this act of the cross, my children, my sons, my daughters. Would you extend to us, will we know that grace more deeply and more profoundly this morning, no matter what area of suffering that we may be experiencing? May we come to the table and experience your grace this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.